Well, good morning again. What makes you tick? What establishes the rhythm of your life? Think about that with me. Now, some of you are like, well, there's a simple answer. I have this electronic device uh, that's been surgically inserted and it sends a, called a pacemaker. It sends an electrical impulse and it keeps my heart at the rhythm uh, that it needs to stay. Isn't that a remarkable thing? I, it, every time somebody tells me, oh, I'm just, I'm having a minor surgery, I'm getting a pacemaker. I'm like, you know how crazy that is, right? That they're going to put a battery controlled thing inside of you to keep your heart at the right rhythm. It, it's absolutely stunning to me. But what is it that spiritually establishes that rhythm in your life? You see, we're on the heels of talking about the fruit of the Spirit. For nine weeks, we looked at the different uh, characteristics that are reflective of God's nature, His character, and how as the Spirit works in us, those things grow and manifest themselves. In this passage, Paul contrasted the result that Spirit-enabled function of the Spirit in our life with the natural consequences of us operating in our sinful nature or in our flesh, the term that Paul loves to use for that. But here as we get to the end of the fruit of the Spirit, we see that Paul immediately goes back to this primary question. What is it that is the primary orientation of our heart, of our life? And we really see that in these verses. So, Back to being able to do many verses, we are going to do a verse for each point, verse 24, 25, and 26. We are going to look at belonging and battling. We are going to look, secondly, at living and lining up. And thirdly, we are going to look at a warning that we may be wandering. And so that's what we're going to look at. If you take notes, that should help you. First of all, belonging and battling, we see that in verse 24. Notice Paul says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, the first thing I want us to see here is that Paul has an order in this verse that's so easy to miss. And when we miss it, it actually gets us discombobulated in terms of that rhythm in our life. Notice he doesn't say those who have crucified the flesh now belong to Jesus, but it's the other way around. He says those that are of, quite literally, those that are of Christ Jesus, appropriately translated here, belong to Christ Jesus. They're the ones who have crucified the flesh with its passions. You see, we have to get that order right because we still struggle with that temptation to think the first thing we do is get all of that bad stuff under control and then God's like, well, I guess I'll take you. Uh, we constantly are thinking of God like an elite uh, college or university that wants to make sure we've not only made the grades, but we've done all the service projects. We've started our own micro-business that helps poor people in Africa. You know, we are an excelling student in every possible way, and then we get in. And the problem is sometimes we have that orientation when it comes to our relationship with God, but it doesn't work that way works the opposite way. First, 
God accepts us, not because of anything that we've done, but solely out of His grace and love for us. And all we do is receive that gift by believing in Jesus Christ. When we do that, the Bible says we belong to Him. We are of Jesus Christ. But then there is something that happens because we belong to Him. We not only want to, but are able to crucify the flesh along with his passion. So we have to get that order right, right off the bat. Secondly, in order to understand this a little better, I think we can look at what Paul says in another passage in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. He has a very similar kind of dialogue. It's obviously very important to him. He wants all of the churches to understand this. He says there... In Romans 8, beginning in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. There he's saying, look, it's part of your birthright that the Spirit leads you. It's part of being in the family of God. And he says it is part of the rhythm of the life of the person who is a child of God that they are putting to death the works of the flesh or the works of the sinful nature. Now, I want you to notice there that in the translation that we have here, it says uh, that those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh. That tense of that verb is very important. Because it is a tense that is active. Before, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and in other places where he uses similar terms, he often uses the passive. This is something that God has done for me. It is something that he's done in me. And that is certainly true. But here, he uses an active uh, sense of that word. I have crucified So he's saying this is something that the Christian who belongs to Jesus is participating in. They are crucifying the flesh. The tense there is about something that has happened in the past, but it has continued implication in the present. It's something that has happened and is continuing to happen, in other words. Isn't that that helpful for us? I think, I don't know about you, but I would love it. If I could just participate in this activity one time, and then that's sort of it. I, I would love it if I could just say, you know what, I'm, I am so tired of my impatience or my irascibility or my anger uh, or, you know, my inconsideration. I'm just going to stop that. And wouldn't it be great if that was the end of it? It was like, well, yeah, well, that's a thing of the past. I remember when I was 25 and I used to be impatient, you know. But then I just decided I'm, I'm going to get rid of that, you know, once and for all. So here that tense is even, even helping us understand it is something we have done and it is something that we continue to do. It's an ongoing part of our life that we are actively seeking uh, to crucify the flesh along with its passions, I love it. And when we hear this terminology, I love the way Jesus says it uh, over in Luke. 
When he talks about people who follow him, he uses language that certainly ties into this. In verse 23 of Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Here Jesus is not uncomfortable in any way with using the language of crucifixion, take up your cross daily and follow me. Yes, Coming to God through faith in Jesus Christ is something you do one time. It's something that uh, God does for you and in you that changes who you are. It's such a radical change that the Bible describes it as being born again. And yet, once we're born again, there's a new rhythm in our life. And that rhythm is that every day... We pick up the cross, as Jesus says, and we follow him. Or as Paul says, we crucify the flesh along with its passions. Now, having said all that, you're like, what in the world does that look like? What does that look like? Well, I was very helped by uh, a former pastor who's with Jesus now who uh, worked in New York City for many years, and uh, he's very helpful He says that when we talk about uh, Tim Keller, if you haven't figured that out by now, uh, he says that when we crucify the flesh along with its passions, what we're trying to do is strangle sin at the motivational level. I like that. In other words, what is it in us that causes us to want to do the things that the Bible says don't honor God, don't bring Him glory? don't help us, aren't the way we made, why do we do those things? And really, the the essence of why we do those things is because we believe that by pursuing the works of the flesh or the works of the sinful nature, depending on which translation and passage you're looking at, we do those things because it's them that we believe will give us meaning and significance and purpose and joy in this world. It's that rhythm that we believe will make us significant. And so let's go back and look at some of the works of the flesh that are described. Uh, Things, if you look back up in the passage uh, there, we see things like enmity and strife and jealousy, fits of anger. You know, how do we believe that these things will help us? Well, we get into fits of anger and jealousy because we believe that life is a zero-sum operation. In other words, if someone else enjoys any success, uh, any wealth, any popularity, that somehow that's taking away from us our significance and our importance in the world. And so when we see the success of another, it angers us and we need to knock that person down enough so that we can feel more important. In other words, we are driven by this desire to be validated by the opinions of other people. And when we see that validation given to people who are not us, we react angrily or with envy or jealousy or strife. Or he talks about divisions Uh, There, as parts of the works, uh, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, 
You know, why in the world would we think that that helps us? It's because we feel better about ourselves when our side wins. You know, when we get the blue ribbon, the gold medal, we win that contest or election, we feel better about ourselves. We say to ourselves, well, we, we must matter. We must be significant. We came out on the winning side. And we're looking to that to give us significance and meaning. I know not everybody here is a sports fan. I, I, I don't understand it, but I, I accept it. And I love you one way or the other. And, uh, but I can tell you that, I can tell that, that somehow sport for me has moved beyond its appropriate place of purely entertainment and distraction when after my team loses, which they've lost two in a row now, which is very discouraging, my day is shot. I, I'm less kind to my wife. I don't feel like talking to my friends I begin to be adversely affected, and a loving wife or friend might say, are you in getting your identity, your significance, your joy wrapped up in the success of a bunch of highly paid athletes who play a sport in another country that don't know you exist? And the answer is yes, a little. Right. See, some of you right now are feeling self-righteous because you say at least the overpaid professional athletes that don't know I exist play just up the road in Denver or over in Chicago or Boston or L.A. or wherever it is that you cheer for the team. But we see how quickly it happens. It becomes something that we believe validates us. Let's bring it home a little bit more. When we're doing well at our job, when we get that pay raise, when our title now is executive vice president or president or CEO, or we finally find out that there's a C-suite where we work, right? I didn't even know what that was until a few years ago. Welcome to life in ministry. Somebody said, well, I'm applying for a C-suite job. I'm like, is that a tech company? And they said, no, they, you know, the C's, the chairman you know, the chief executive officer, the chief financial officer, the chief technological officers. I'm like, oh, people whose titles begin with a C, in case you didn't know. And we say, well, now that I've, I'm in the C-suite, not only do I have a better view on all the plebeians who do the work of our company, but I feel better about myself. And it enables us to then think we're better than other people. And what is that? It's the sinful nature that wants desperately to find its worth, significance, purpose, and meaning in something other than God. Even though God made us to reflect His glory and to be His image here on this earth so that we would show that we know there is nothing more important, valuable, or that will give us greater significance than Him and a relationship with Him. You see... Because of belonging to Christ, we now have the ability to see what's at the root of these sinful attitudes and actions. And we say, I don't need that anymore because I have found everything I thought those sinful things would give me. And I have found it in Christ and I belong to Him and I no longer need to perform for significance or purpose or meaning. 
because I have it in Jesus. And so now we look at those things in a different way. That's what Paul is saying. By continuing to crucify the flesh along with its passions, it's a way of saying, no, my identity is in Christ who was nailed to a cross to pay the penalty for sin and rose from the dead to show that he had won that victory. That is where my significance comes from. And all of those other things that have distracted me and caused me to be unloving and unkind and unmerciful and unjust to the people around me and constantly became idols in my life, I can nail to the cross. Because they can never, will never give me the meaning, significance, and purpose that I was made to enjoy. Only Jesus can. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying when we belong, we can battle against the works of the flesh in a way that we could never battle before. Because now we know we don't need them anymore. Secondly, in verse 25, uh, we see that he continues by changing his language a little bit. Uh, In verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step uh, with the Spirit. Uh, Again, we see that Paul is using a very similar strategy that he did in the previous verse. Uh, Here, he is using an indicative that is a statement of a reality, a statement of a fact, uh, you know, we, uh, he says that we live by the Spirit. That's a statement of actual fact for those who have believed in Jesus Christ. And then he gives an imperative. That is, uh, what do we do because of that fact? What is the direction that we go because of the fact of living by the Spirit? And he says, what do we do? We keep in step with the Spirit. And here I said that this is living and lining up. We need to keep that order correct, just like I said in the first uh, point. First is the truth, the indicative, and then comes the imperative. First, we recognize that because we believe in Jesus that the Holy Spirit lives in us and we live in and through him. And what does that mean? That now we live, we keep in step with the Spirit. That expression, keep in step with the Spirit, was a term that was used in the Roman army about staying in line, about staying in line. And uh, I, I, I really don't know much about warfare, ancient or modern. And so I say that as a caveat for all of those uh, out here who are experts in such a thing. But my best understanding of Roman military tactics uh, was that the legion or the century, they were so crucial in that everyone stayed in the position where they were assigned. In other words, their strength was as a unit. You know, whenever you, whenever you see films, you know, about ancient battles, you always have thousands of people running willy-nilly, you know, over a field, you know, swinging axes or, or jabbing with spears. And that, that is not how the Greeks and Romans took over the world. They took over the world by learning to fight as a group, by making sure that every person was in the spot they were supposed to be so that your shield not only protected you, but the person next to you on either side, and that their uh, military force not only worked for themselves, but for you as well. In other words, staying in line was essential in the way that they fought. Here, Paul is using this expression and saying that if 
we live in the spirit, we need to understand that we keep in step with him. We stay in line. We don't seek to go on our own. We don't try to say, well, thank you, Jesus, for bringing me into a relationship with you, but I'm going to be one of those willy-nilly barbarians running out there by myself. No, we stay in line with the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. That's, that's that language as I was thinking about this, and I, I was thinking about how often, even though I live in the Spirit, I keep trying to do things in my own strength. I try to do them on my own steam, so to speak. Do you ever have that problem? It's, it's almost like we treat the Spirit like training wheels. I don't even know that we use training wheels anymore. I, I'm telling you, as soon as kids walk, we put them on these balance bikes, right? Have anybody's kids got one of those? I mean, they're barely able to walk, but we stick them on a bike. And the bike has no pedals, and you just sort of Fred Flintstone it, you know, uh, you know, using your legs as the power for the bike, and it helps them find their balance and stuff like that. So perhaps saying training wheels doesn't help you because you're like, what's that? You know, well, when my children were little, and, uh, and obviously far less advanced than your children, you know, uh, we would get them their first bike, and it would have two little wheels on that back wheel, and, and what it did is it kept the bike from falling over. So you didn't traumatize your small child when they tried to learn, you know, to ride a bike. We did the same thing in the pool with swimmies. Even though I was in a Chick-fil-A the other day and there was a high school kid with swimmies on, the little uh, inflatable thing. And I'm like, is that a thing? You know, I, I try to keep up with fashion, but nobody told me I'm supposed to wear swimmies to Chick-fil-A. I mean, here in Colorado, you don't need swimmies ever. There's no water, right? <laughs> So I don't, I don't get it, but it, I guess it was an ironic statement. I don't know. His friends seemed to think it was funny. I, it's fine. But the training wheels, back to the point, you don't expect to be permanent. The goal is once the child learns to pedal and keep their balance, we have that wonderful day where, you know, mom, dad, probably granddad, because he's the only one who knows how to use a tool, comes over and takes the training wheels off, you know, and, and then we run behind the bike and the kid goes zooming off and we take movies of it and share it on social media and it's all very, very exciting. And I think sometimes we think the spiritual life is that way. That the spirit is like training wheels. And yeah, I need the spirit while, I, while I'm getting my balance, while I'm learning how this Christian life thing works. Uh, but the goal is to you know, to be able to take off the training wheels and do it myself. And do you know what we call that? The Galatian heresy. It's what Paul's been writing about. Paul's been saying, if you think that you begin with the Spirit, but continue in your own strength, then you don't understand the gospel at all. He says, look, if we live in the Spirit, the whole point is to stay aligned with the Spirit. We cannot do it ourselves. Not now, not ever. You know, we... When we are made perfectly moral, perfectly obedient, perfectly in the image of Jesus at the end of our life or when Jesus comes back, we still need Jesus. We still will be in his presence. It says we won't have the Son because he is the Son. In other words, the goal is never to be independent. 
The goal is always to stay in step with God through the Spirit. Always, always. I love that uh, one of the commentators I was reading, uh, Richard Longnecker, who's very helpful in this statement, uh, this is what he writes. It's, it's a long quote, but, you know, before I take his thought, I thought I'd actually quote him. The result of the statement, he writes, keep in step with the Spirit, lays emphasis on the obligation of Christian living as being neither to legal prescriptions, that would be nominism or nomism, uh, nor to the dictates of the flesh, that's libertinism, but to the Spirit who both directs and enables, and who is fully sufficient both for bringing to birth a believer's new life in Christ and for affecting a truly Christian lifestyle. I love that. What, what is Now I will just take his idea, uh, now that I have quoted him. What is, what is he saying? He says, this idea for Paul of keeping in step with the Spirit it negates two things that the Galatian Christians and Colorado Springs Christians are tempted to do. Uh, one is that we focus on the legal prescriptions. In other words, we go, we go running back to the law and we say, I know God loves me because I did the right thing. I, I said the right thing. I wear the right thing. In other words, I, I, I know that I'm a Christian, but I still think I have to do these things to please God. And that's what Paul's been writing about in Galatians. And he says, no, you're not under the law. That's not how you're right with God. You're right with him by his grace through faith. Uh, but secondly, he's dealing with obviously a group of people in Galatia, just like we deal with plenty of these people in the modern church today that say, well, if God loves me no matter what, then I'll just do whatever comes to mind, willy-nilly. I mean, you know, cats and dogs living together, craziness, all of that. You know, in other words, no moral containment whatsoever. And that's libertinism or antinomianism, living against the law, living as though there is no standard. And he said, and Paul says, no. For it is for freedom that you've been set free, but you don't use that freedom as a license for sin. Paul's answer to either legalism or antinomianism is keeping in step with the Spirit. Being controlled and directed and having the rhythm of your life being set by God himself through his Spirit living in you. That is what he's saying. It's so Incredibly helpful. We see this if you look back even in the same chapter in verse 16 through 18. Paul said there, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. What is Paul saying? He is saying, let me put it as simply as I can, stop trying to do this yourself. Instead, continue to depend on God at work in you through his spirit. When we try to do it ourselves, we will either seek to find the pleasure of God through our performance, which is being legalistic, or we will throw off all attempt to reflect him and his glory and his attributes, which is working against 
who God is and what he has said is best for us. He said, no, stay in step with the Spirit. Stay in step with the Spirit. I've seen a beautiful illustration of this when I went to the Grand Canyon on the South Rim. uh, And they have a tiny little trail that takes you down into the canyon. And you can, for just a little bit of of cash, you can ride a donkey or a mule. I can't remember. It's one of those things. I always get confused. I know what the difference is. I couldn't tell you what the difference is by looking at one. But the weird thing about that is that they tell you, well, these donkeys do this every day, and we haven't lost one yet. But you're like, that does... This donkey stinks. This donkey doesn't look like it's had a bath or combed. And yet you're telling me I should trust my life and the life of my whole family to these animals who are proverbially famous for being stubborn and not doing what they're supposed to do. And they're like, yes. Will it be cash or credit card? Right? <laughs> I did not do that. I instead chose the modern appliance of a helicopter to go uh, across the Grand Canyon, thanks to a a member in one of my former churches. Uh, But I watched them, and those donkeys go single file right down that path, one right after the other. There's not enough room for them to go to a breast. Single file, they keep in line, they keep in step, and everybody's safe, and everybody gets to the bottom, and everybody gets back up, and that's the way it works. That's the picture I want you to keep in mind of the Christian life. Everything will continue to grow and you enjoy the wonderful things that God has done for you as you stay in line with the Spirit. It may sound odd. It may feel like you're out of control, but that's the way you get there in one piece. That's the way it works. We keep in step with the Spirit. So how do we know how that's going? Well, thirdly, in verse 26, we have a, uh, the warning of wandering. I'll be honest, commentators don't know what to do with this passage, exactly where to break it, whether to break it after verse uh, 23, 24, 25, 26. I, I love it just the way the, your translation has it. I think the passage ends in 26. I think we are in a transition to what Paul is saying as we will look at next week. But look at this last verse. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is a warning light. Now, I don't know whether this has happened to you. It happened to me a few weeks ago uh, when we had the snow and, uh, you know, Reformation Day and all that fun stuff. By the time I got to church, there was a warning light on, on, my, on my dash. And it was a low tire pressure light. You know, I know we're thankful and we hate those things, Right. I don't know whether you're like me or not, but like a notification on my phone or on my car, it activates all of my compulsions, right? And I'm like, why is there a notification? We need to solve this. We need to fix this right now. I felt like getting out as I'm driving down Powers because I've got a little portable inflator. We need to get this right. I need to get this light off the dashboard of my car, right? Why? Because it's telling us something may be wrong. In our lives, both individually and as a community, Paul is saying there's a surefire way of knowing if we are not keeping in step with the Spirit, if we are not crucifying the flesh along with its passions. And what is that? It is this thing that he calls here conceit, conceited. 
What is that? That word, if you have an old translation, for those of you who still love the King James Bible, uh, I believe it says vainglory. That's a great word because vain, of course, is empty, and glory means glory. It means honor. It means uh, importance. In other words, empty honor, empty importance. He said that's, that's what he's saying. This is a great indication that something is wrong, is that we have this empty glory, if you will. And, and how do we see that? We see this in two different reactions. Notice he says that it creates two things. One is provoking and the other is envying. Now that word uh, provoking is the word challenging. In other words, the first way we see that we have this empty glory is that we need to challenge everybody about everything. We become combative. We become competitive. Why? Because as I've said before, your success, your good idea, uh, your accomplishment intimidates me because I want the attention. And so you get a little bit of attention, I got to knock you down a peg. Social media has perfected the art of this. Right? I have never had an original idea in my mind, but I critique harshly every original idea I find on the internet. Right? Why? Because I have an empty glory. I'm, I've, got, I've got a vacuum inside of me, but I want glory. So I see someone getting some attention, and I've got to be competitive. I've got to knock them down. This happens in the church. We become so combative that we can't have a conversation. I mean, it's one thing for that to happen out in the world where people don't have the spirit to keep in step with. But Paul says it's a warning light when it happens among people who claim to be followers of Jesus. Why are you so competitive? Why do you have to knock other people down? Why is this so essential to you? It's because there is a vacuum inside of you called vainglory. It's a challenge. But then there's another side of it. He says it also expresses itself as envying, i.e. being intimidated by other people who have other ideas or more training or have more talent in areas you don't particularly have talent or whatever it is. And to fill up that emptiness inside of me, you know, I have to basically resent what God has done in that other person. I love the old definition of, of envy. Envy is sorrow at the good of another. You hear about something extraordinary and it is all you can do not to spit a little venom. You see, I love it. Whenever we're combative, we have a problem with needing to feel superior than other people. When we're envying, we're having a problem of constantly feeling inferior to other people. But either way, it shows that we think our meaning, our significance, our purpose, our acceptance comes from how much we accomplish, how well we do, what other people think of us. And so when other people get that acclaim or that attention, it drives us crazy either in that competitive competitiveness or in our envy of them because we have forgotten that our meaning, purpose, and significance comes only through Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is here is your warning light on the dashboard. So today, some of you will go to community. You will hear someone say something interesting or thoughtful or insightful. And in your heart, you will, you will have one of two things happen. Uh, you, well, one of three things. I will actually assume the Spirit's working in you too. 
you'll understand when I give you the three things. You're like, I don't know what you're talking about, bald man. Number one, you will say, I could have said that better. I think he missed something. I'm not sure he even knows what the aorist tense is, which I do. I explained it earlier in this sermon, just side note. Or your reaction will be, oh, I could never teach like that person. I don't even know that I should be here. I don't have any value at all. Those are the two reactions. Those are warning lights on the board that maybe I'm not finding my identity in Christ, but in what other people think of me or my success. The third response is to say, praise Jesus, that I can see the glory of God reflected in the ability he has given that person to teach or to speak or to pray. So there are three. The first two are a warning that I am not crucifying the flesh along with its passion, that I am not in step with the Spirit. But here is the thing. If we ever get through a whole sermon without saying this, you guys write me a note. You are very faithful to do that. So what do we do about the fact that we blow it all the time? That even as I listen to this sermon, you know, internally I'm being combative with the pastor or I'm being envious or I have those warning lights going on all over the place in my relationship with my family or my friends at school or those people I work with. What do I do? I repent. I repent. I recognize that I am not crucifying the flesh along with its passions, that I'm not keeping in step with the Spirit, that I am trying to find my significance, meaning, and purpose in what other people think about me or what I accomplish. And I say, Lord, please forgive me for constantly trying to gratify that sinful nature and help me to remember, to know, to experience, to enjoy that all that I need is in Jesus Christ. Help me, help me, Lord, to live in the light of the truth of the gospel, and know that I belong to Jesus and that the Spirit lives in me and I live in Him. Help me live accordingly. And then we'll get together again next week and have an opportunity to continue to learn about how we can repent and how we can continue to trust Him that we might grow up, not just individually, but corporately, into a group of followers of Jesus who are less concerned about what others think about them and what they've accomplished than they are about showing Jesus off to Colorado Springs, the West, and the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for how kind you are to us to not be exhausted with us when we repent and need to repent moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. But you delight in our determination to depend upon you. Oh Lord, we pray that your spirit will be the operating principle in our life, will be the thing that sets the pace for the way we think and speak and act. Oh Lord, we pray that we will stay in rhythm with you continue to send those impulses into our heart that we will know when we have fallen out of step and bring us back. Time and time again we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.